Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cup podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop, and Lens Distortions. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done more than 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for almost 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking with some of the editing team from the biggest, pinkest movie to hit screens in a while, Barbie. With us for this conversation are editor Nick Huey, ACE, his first assistant editor Nick Ramirez, apprentice editor Maya Rivera, and post PA Abdul Ndadi. Nick Hoy has been on Art of the Cut before for director Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Nick started out as an apprentice editor to Naomi Garrity, and in 2012 he moved to the editor's chair where he was an additional editor on Girl Most Likely and edited Fairhaven and Manhattan Romance before joining forces with Greta Gerwig for her breakout film, Lady Bird. In an interesting bit of trivia, another apprentice editor under Naomi Garrity was none other than Jennifer Lame, who edited the other major film opening in theaters the same weekend as Barbie, Oppenheimer. First assistant Nick Ramirez was an editor on the documentary Stotts, co-edited with Nick Huey. He also edited the feature film Mayday and was the first assistant on Little Women and Lady Bird. As an apprentice editor, this was really Maya Rivera's very first film in post, but since then, she also was an apprentice on The Beanie Bubble, which is out now as well. Abdul Ndadi is the post PA on Barbie after moving over from animation. He did animation for a documentary called Stickman, The Roosevelt Wilkerson Story. Before I hop into our discussion with the Barbie team, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing base from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to BorisFX.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to BorisFX.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. We're almost ready for this week's interview, but first let me tell you about our latest sponsor, Lens Distortions. Lens Distortions offers premium music and effects that are perfect for film and TV, like the track you're listening to now, as well as our theme music at the top of the episode. Their web platform offers really helpful options for editors such as variations of every track and sound effects pairings that complement the music. I've been using lens distortion assets including VFX and sound effects for years and can say that the quality is top notch. Plus, they have a special offer just for Art of the Cut listeners. 
Visit lensdistortions.com slash AOTC to claim your discount. That's lensdistortions, plural, with an S, dot com slash AOTC. And now, Nick Huey, ACE, and the Barbie Post team. I'll start off by asking them to introduce themselves so you can put a name with a voice. My name is Nick Huey. I'm the editor of Barbie. Um, we did have a lot of Nicks on this show, uh, which was fun. It was sort of like the Kens. <laughs> hey, this is my voice. I'm uh, Nick Ramirez. I was the first assistant editor on Barbie. Uh, hi, I'm Maya Rivera. I was the apprentice editor on Barbie. Oh, hi, everybody. I'm Abdul and Daddy, and I was the post PA on Barbie. Nick, to get back to you, the last time we spoke, you cut Little Women for Greta, and that is a very different film <laughs> on so many levels than uh, this one. You also edited Lady Bird for her. Was there a change in the way that you, the two of you approached this film? There was just more babies this time. Um, so we, she had another baby on this one. And uh, so we're very used to cutting with a tiny infant. Uh, and then there was just also like a more grown infant this time. I guess he's not an infant anymore. He's a toddler. Uh, and whereas we had only had one on the on the Little Women and on Ladybird, uh, it was much more simple because you know I had a little kid then, but none none of the rest of us did at the time. When we talked about Little Women, you mentioned that you did scene cards on a wall, but because it was that specific type of film, you don't usually do that. What about Barbie? Yeah, it's funny. I say I, we don't usually do that, and then I keep ending up doing it. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it is helpful uh, to really just look at how things are flowing. You know, I wouldn't say I look at it even once a week, but occasionally I sit there and I really do look at them. And I also, Duel was great about making, like, breaking them up into, like, smaller chunks. So if there was a sequence that actually was kind of, we were moving a piece of it around or something, he would make two or three cards out of one that was originally one card. And so we were constantly, you know, moving things around and trying things out and taking things, out. you know, I would just, if we, if we lost something that put it on the floor, so to speak, I would just put it in the corner of the bulletin board and it ended up, you know, at first there was only one or two things in the corner. And then by the end, it was like a, a, a deck of cards. Um, and part of that was because we were breaking up scenes into a lot of pieces and then losing them. Um, and it was also just because we were whittling down something that was originally quite long with eight reels into something that was quite short, still with eight reels. <laughs> and we kept the eight reel form, which was wonderful, actually, because reel seven was such a uh, wonderful thing. You could watch it on its own as a short film, and it would be pretty fun from the beginning of the Matchbox 20 song to the end of the I'm Just Ken song. It was a great reel. That brings up an interesting point of why would you keep the reels? I'm assuming that they were 20 minute reels and then they were 10 minute reels or something like more like 25 to 15, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Ramirez can speak to it better. I'm glad the eight reels worked out. There's a small part of me that has some shame as that we didn't get it down to six because <laughs> we actually really wanted to. I don't think Greta or him or even the core team, you know, like it wasn't a big change of how we worked from something smaller like ladybird or even little woman to something that's this this is a crew size shipped project and basically warner brothers did have certain real length limits that they wanted to keep 
And so months out, while we were still very heavily in the edit, we kind of needed to be eight reels. And it was sort of trying to project where that was going to land. So eight was safe at the time. We also were trying to account for additional photography that we did that we couldn't really tell how much long that was going to be. And when we got time to like, all right, we can rebalance to six, had a whole two hour meeting with our sound designer, Eileen Lee, who was awesome. And, And we ultimately decided... We looked at every possible reel break and because the rebalance was going to be just so intensive for the sound team at where we were at in the process, we decided to just stick with eight. It was the cleaner, more efficient thing, even though it was a little more reels than most people are used to. So we did have some short reels in there ultimately, but in the big picture, it actually just saved everyone a lot of work. We needed every hour we could get in the last push of this film. You know, most of our audience is going to know what it means to rebalance the reels and why you do it. But what is that process like and why do you do it? And what does it mean to rebalance reels? Well, rebalancing the reels, trying to put that concisely really is just finding the break points of segments of the film that we work in, which these days primarily I feel like is just helpful for organizational and workflow processes, particularly at like the mix and the DI, because you kind of work in your stage of reels, you know, one real one. All right, now we'll go back and do notes. Then we'll move to reel two. So rebalancing was sort of going, all right, we were at eight reels early on in the process because we needed to be. But now that the lengths have changed, let's take a look at slimming it down to only six, which is usually, I feel like a lot of people get into that range if they can. Um, There's always exceptions. I try and find the happy medium between you want to kind of break where there's like a natural point in the story, if you can, so that when you are working on these things, it's not obviously not mid scene or mid feeling uh, that you're like, oh, that's the end of the reel. But also on a technical level that there's hopefully not music crossing over the scenes that's always a bit of a challenge to join those reels when there's music crossing over or even overly in detailed sound work and that was kind of the big driving force of why we didn't do it because there there was so much built in at that point and we we locked a little late on this one so that was kind of why we just decided to to hold it at a and not force everyone to go through a rebalance because that was actually a pretty time-consuming thing at that point. And that's so, why you brought Eileen? She was a great sound designer, but yeah, she was probably the one who I spoke with the most to strategize because I didn't want to just willy-nilly be like, hey, by the way, everyone, we're going to six and now you all have to spend your whole FX team and everyone has to however many days to get that all sorted out. We walked through it all together and we had a whole plan for six, but ultimately decided not to not to do it. How long was that editor's cut? What do you mean? Like the assembly? Uh, I'm, yeah, the assembly. Greta and I, we're always looking at scenes while she's shooting. So we don't really sit down and like just do an assembly. I do it with every other director. She's one of those directors and she does it so well where she's like, let's look at the assembly scene and then cut the scene and then go on to the next one. Even if she's tired, she's in there the day after shooting. She's just a beast. She really works super hard. I love having a couple of weeks to make my assembly perfect. But honestly, I work so hard during the dailies process. I have an assembly the day after shooting that I think is you could screen. That's my goal is like it's a screenable, playable movie the day after shooting, which I know sounds insane and impossible, but I, that is really what I try to do so that wherever she wants to go, we can look at the scene and work on it together right away and we have a good version of it. 
Um, but we don't just sit down and watch the assembly, whereas I would do that with most directors. She really wants to go through, watch a scene assembly, cut the scene, watch the next scene assembly, cut the scene, go through the whole thing, and then we watch the whole movie. I've heard that same thing from other editors and directors that for a director, it's just too painful to watch you know, something that's that fat. The best way to put it, because even if you're, you know, somebody like Lee or, or just one of these amazing editors whose assembly really can play in a movie theater um, and has such a great crew doing intense, beautiful sound design, temping, fantastic temp score and music. Um, it's not so much that it's painful. It's that it's not helpful. It's actually better to go through it, make sure that you're using your preferred takes and actually reviewing them sometimes just to make sure they're your preferred takes because on the day it's very different than when you're actually sitting in the room watching it as an audience and making sure you're understanding what footage you have to make the scene work properly because you've been so busy on set uh, you actually have to just let yourself go through that process a bit before you can look at the whole picture. Let me just get my hands dirty in each scene before I watch an assembly. Barbie starts with an homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Can you tell us how closely you matched Barbie's open to the Kubrick classic open? Did you have that sequence in the Avid to refer to? Or, you know? Yeah, we, we actually brought in the original version, and we actually have the real scan shots from Kubrick's 2001 as the opening shots of Barbie. I don't know if you can tell those. We actually had to have the, them find them in the vault and rescan them, and then we recolor time them. And then the way Rodrigo shot that sequence, you know, obviously he was referencing everything about the way that Kubrick had done it, and that's a fascinating sequence to just study and see how you know he had shot it over years. I think, Dif you know, each piece was from vastly different times. When we brought it in and kind of tried to do it shot for shot. Obviously, it was a bit too slow, but the main thing that I wanted to do was hit the music at the same time when the, you know, ape smashes the skeleton with the bone. The first time it hits at a very particular music note, and so I made sure that the girl smashing the doll hit at that same exact moment, the first time she smashes the doll. I thought that was just the most important moment. So, you know, we brought it in, we tried to match it up for, shot for shot, and then we just sort of sped it up and made sure that that first bone smash was timed with the first doll smash. Um, and I could go on and on about what that scene means, um, both in 2001 and what it means in this context, which I think both are extremely meaningful to human existence and to women and uh, to what we're all doing today. This seems like a very L.A. movie, but you cut this in New York? Oh, yeah. And, you know, 90% of it was shot in London. So it's a very London movie in my mind. But a lot of it was shot in L.A. I mean, a fair amount was shot in L.A. And then the whole thing we did in New York, even the mix and the DI, even though we had a lot of L.A. people come work on it. But the actual editorial and VFX editing crew is all New York-based. And then the VFX supervisor and coordinator um, were from London. And, and our sound people were from L.A., our colorist was also from LA via France. How did that kind of hyper-stylized performance of Barbie affect your editing? No matter what, you're just trying to tell a story that's personal and meaningful to you, and it should make you laugh and it should make you emotional. And so that's all we were doing, I would say, the whole time. It's just that it, it, it is a different tone 
So you are having to find that tone. And that's tricky. Like when something's heightened, it's so easy to go into camp, like too far into camp or have it just be hitting you over the head with a hammer, which there were certain versions of certain scenes and the whole movie that was too fast and too broad and too campy. And we were constantly just trying to walk that fine line of making it feel very real, but also heightened. I know it's hard to talk about. It's hard to say, but if you see each take and you actually see the nuance in performance and start to sculpt that, um, it's drastically different. It's really amazing what you can do with just hitting, you know, a handful of scenes, like let's pass making Ken a little less extreme, how that would change the whole arc of the movie was really powerful. You mentioned tone. And I also was thinking of the big changes in tone. So how did you sculpt being in one tone, being in another tone, getting back to another tone, and also those transitions between tones? One thing I really enjoyed doing is switching tones and transitions. I find that extremely satisfying as a filmmaker and editor. One of the things I live for is like doing those kinds of shifts properly. First of all, giving it the attention it deserves and understanding what you're trying to do and really giving it that time and finding the right sound design to do it, the right visuals to do it, obviously, and the right music to do it, and the right emotional backbone that allows you to get there throughout. It has to be there throughout or else you're not going to sell it. It's a hard thing to be general about because it's so specific. You really have to say, it, this transition, I had to do this, and it's very specific. So it's hard to speak generally about it, except you know the movie's always trying to tell you what it is, and you need to let it go there and you need to give it the space to do that and and it either works or it doesn't and sometimes it takes a few screenings to suss it out but you really have to just keep working it i feel like like the pace of this one more than anything we've worked on in the past was particularly tight i've in some cases in a way that i wonder keeping that up is that was that a big part of being nimble to switch tones so swiftly because there is so much happening that if it ever drags for a moment too long or something that it would sort of start to not flow right i think i don't know does that resonate at all to me when you guys talk about it or? absolutely greta always talks about it. it's it's like singing the song and you know, just have to find the rhythm and there's a place where it needs to go to the bridge or whatever you can push the analogy as far as you want you know when it's firing on all cylinders and the moment you did something wrong at least i can feel it especially when i'm watching it with a small audience or a large audience that we've hit we're offbeat now. And that's the best way to say it is like, you're singing along with it. And then suddenly you're offbeat in some way, whether it's too slow or too fast. It's very common that we've done something too fast and we need a moment to breathe. And we found that in a lot of places. I would also say when in doubt, tightening um, can help you pull off things that you wouldn't be able to pull off if you were more languid. Maya, there are a lot of guys on this call. Was it just you and Greta and all these men? There is a lot of women on the crew actually i shared a room with gloria who is uh, a great assistant editor there's not many editing rooms i've been in but the ones that i've been in have been very mixed company like men and women people like you and nick and abdul are really probably the very first screening audience for stuff that nick cuts can you talk about um your experience in in being able to see early edits and speak into them? And how how did you feel? Did you feel like, oh, I, I don't know that I should say anything? Or did you feel like, oh, I really want to, you know, put my two cents in? 
the way who he works is that he really delegates ideas to the rest of the team. So Ramirez, I, Gloria, we would take things that Nick or, you know, Greta sort of threw at Nick and then we would just go with it and sort of play with our own ideas and see if they stuck. And some of them did. Yeah, when I think about when I was an apprentice, like my most exciting moments were when Naomi or whoever was my editor would come in and say like, hey, we're working on this crash sequence. Can you just try a bunch of different ways of doing it and try a bunch of different sound design and things? So I try to, to do that as well. And obviously there's a million other things going on, but if you can get to this, it's the most fun thing to do, obviously, is just be creative. And it makes the movie better. There's so many great creative things that Maya did that are in the movie and it's the biggest comedy opening of all time or something and my you had like one of the funniest jokes in it like and you cut that and you're as, as an apprentice it's amazing i added a, a jump scare on top of kate mckinnon's face <laughs> that's what something i came up on the fly sort of grabbing uh inspiration from like pb's big adventure and tiktok <laughs> hey nick uh nick ramirez before we got on the start of the podcast, you and I talked about this idea with Greta that she has this relentless pursuit and that you'd often go fourth, fifth, sixth best idea before you got to the correct one. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give us a little bit of a story like that? Going back to Lady Bird, Nick and Greta collectively have always fostered not only that relentless pursuit, but the team around that to make that happen because quite frankly especially with something this large there's more ideas than there is time and so it would just be a constant running list of try this or try that and we'd sort of jump in where we could find some time to do that honestly that's probably thinking back to you know ladybird was like maybe only that was like my second assistant job ever so it's kind of early days for me really starting to get my head in the game of what like really cutting something, getting your hands in there was. And yeah, I think that was one of the first things I just sort of realized working with Nick and Greta is it sounds so simple, but the degree to which you just keep trying, keep chasing the idea, making sure it's the best it can be or pushing it beyond the best it can be to realize, oh, we broke it. Now we got to go one back. <laughs> that sort of mentality while difficult sometimes to be really exhausting or used to you you know you can almost become circular when you've done versions that you're like oh wait we did that one before you know um so that's just like a general environment i would say that that is the standard working with greta and with nick and rooted out of that is this team aspect of you got an idea go for it hey we did this thing you wanted to try one little thing on top of it do it on the side throw a bin up top and, and put a note on it and we'll we'll check it out later so it's a great learning environment and teamwork environment and then i don't know if we want to get into it right now the human montage i think was was maybe in some ways the the biggest of that because it was such a innately collaborative thing because of what it literally is it is material made from the whole crew and some from, from the cast and it actually took everyone's heart and hands to, to, to get that thing shaped over time. Nick Hui, can you, while we're talking about this, can you explain a little bit about what this human montage was and how how did it work? In the script, it was, we said, like a Maliki thing, <laughs> like a Terrence Malick thing that just showed life. 
and we never really shot anything for it. We didn't really know if we needed it. And as we were screening it for small groups and for Warner Brothers and different people, we felt we did need something there. And so we tried the Godfrey Reggio version and the Terrence Malick version and the Stan Brackage version using either found footage or like nature footage or all these things, you know, like a time lapse of a flower coming out of the ground. Koyana Scotsy. We tried man with a movie camera vibes. We did all these different ideas and where we ended up was like personal super eight movies. Ramirez's aunt is in it as this beautiful piece of film. That's almost breaking. And you realize like, that's what it is. It's like the memories of, of, of women and their mothers and their mothers before them and their daughters and their daughters. And it's it's sort of echoing what Rhea Perlman says in the scene in a visual, visceral way. And once we kind of found that, I think it just kind of came together. And it was beautiful how everyone found their footage of people in their lives, friends, family, that they wanted to use in the movie, which I think was really beautiful. And it's another way that we really made it our own. It was a personal film in a lot of ways. Maya, did you get to contribute to that? Uh, yeah, my great-grandmother is in that montage, and Nick Ramirez and Gloria and I did our own versions of, did several versions of this montage, trying things out. That's ultimately what stuck. Abdul, did Abdul, did you get any of your family members in there? Oh, uh, yeah, it was really amazing. My mom, who had you know passed away um, last year, she was in it, and my niece, and I actually just got a video from my aunt, her reaction to it, and it was really, really touching. There's actually two shots in there that are of the same person, my Aunt Sue, uh, back in Arizona, and uh, but at two different ages. Uh, it was like her as a teenager and a young girl. Very beautiful shots um, that my grandpa had filmed way back when on 8mm, and also a shot of my grandma, uh, who I grew up with, uh, Grandma Connie. She made it in, so... That sequence, I feel like, was truly a perfect example of, I think all of us did multiple versions and variations of ideas to figure out what was this thing. It was a feeling, we were pursuing a feeling, but it was hard to hone in on what created the right feeling and dozens of of variations using different types of material and structure to get that to that point. And also throwing out, uh, adding to the crew list too, she's not here, but a shout out to not only to Gloria, uh, but Jamie Sakonic, uh, another assistant editor who came on for the last push of the film with us. And I remember her first like week or two on getting up to speed. She she was sort of like bringing in a ton of footage of her family who wound up in. She she also was a, was a big part of getting that that ball rolling because it wasn't we didn't have it in the whole time. So we kind of when we got when we recommitted back into the idea, it, we we had a little bit of a ticking clock with it, too. Um, so it, it took it took the village. Nick Hui, was there direction from Greta about like what she thought that should montage should be? It was from the first time we talked about it. It was something Maliki that represented life, and that was it. It was very broad. Greta and Noah are are so smart, and they're so in tune with what they want. But the specifics are always things like we have to throw it at the wall and see what sticks. So we were just made a bunch of versions and said, I like that shot. I don't like that, blah, 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 until you finally get to something where we all agreed it was very meaningful. And this is not even to talk about sound design and music yet, which are so integral to the sequence. But just getting the images right and deciding that it should be all from people who worked on the movie, which, of course, is 
once you see it from now, 2020 hindsight, it's so obvious it needed to be only women and it needed to be some people working on the film. Like that's what makes it special and beautiful and unique and tell the story. Um, but it took us a while to figure it out. You know, that's what's funny about things like this is it seems so obvious now, but when all you have is a blank page, it takes you a while to get to it. And on top of that, Billie Eilish just sends us this unbelievably beautiful song and we all were like crying listening to it. It was unbelievable. And the lyrics in it and everything, she was just so spot on with it. And so we're like, okay, well, we also have to use that in the sequence. And you know, Eileen's sound design was beautiful. And Dan, who also was the sound designer on it, did a lot of work on that sequence and it was fantastic. Talk to me about the sound design for that sequence. We ended up in the mix bringing it down quite a bit, but I would constantly be going to where our sound editors were working, which was actually a building few blocks from the cutting room i think ramirez you probably made the first architecture of sort of these deep sounds because we would have super 8 footage that was textural sort of brackage-esque as we said where it's just sort of textural building transitions between these shots that are sort of celluloid memories and so the sound would also feel like a memory so it was whooshes rumbles driving sounds things like that but then also occasionally hearing the person on screen doing a little noise. At one point, Greta is jumping off of a bridge in Sweden or something or in Denmark and hitting, and so we hear the splash, but not doing it every time, you know? And then we had fireworks also. Like it was just creating a beautiful kind of cacophony of abstract sounds that accentuated it, and, you know, which end up, you feel them, you don't hear them, if that makes sense, in the final version. And of course, the music ended up being forefront. It wasn't always. And, I think that was the right decision. I wanted to ask about um, pacing. One of the scenes that I, I remembered being a rapid fire, like having a great rhythm to it also was when Ken decides he wants to perform an appendectomy. That's one of my favorite things to cut is things like that. I love doing that. And that's Greta too. It's again, very much the rhythm. If you think about the scene in Little Women, when they're all talking and it's, you know, it's Christmas morning and they're all moving through this amazing steady cam show. And it's like, all we're doing all the time is getting that rhythm to fire as quickly and beautifully as possible and in the right sequence. And so that's a perfect example of it as well. It's just, no matter how it's performed, you have to make it sting at the right tempo. And so that's the funnest part of editing is taking multiple performances at different speeds and different interpretations and different timing and everything and putting it in the order you want it in at the tempo you want it in and with the performances you want and that can involve swapping audio takes or syllables it can involve cutting the middle out of words which i do all the time as an editor that's your job is to manipulate the footage to push it to its highest degree and even if you have the greatest actor you have to cut that perfectly and you have to push it as far as you can push it that's your job and just like it's his job to do the best acting performance he can do so when you have these insanely great performances and it's beautifully shot by rodrigo prieto it's like the greatest production design you've ever seen like i mean just all of it working firing on all the cylinders your duty is to push it and so that's an example of a scene where we just pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. And we found that one really early on. That's the rhythm. That's the funniest way to do it. And that actually stuck for a lot, for the rest of the movie. There's some scenes like that where you're like, first time we did it, we nailed it. And then there's other ones where it just takes a long time to find it. 
Before we move on to some of the other folks on the call, I wanted to talk to you about um, documentary. You and I have both edited documentary. You've even directed documentary. How does that speak into your work or how does it um, help or inform your narrative scripted stuff? Well, and I know Nick Ramirez can speak to this because we did a documentary together right before Barbie. It was called Stats. We co-edited it. I would say the main thing is it is no different, really. And that's the important thing to understand is that you should also approach a scripted narrative as a documentary in a way. Just everything that you can use, you should use it to the best of its ability. Don't don't be boxed in by the script or by the footage in any way. And that's what documentaries do. You know, you're just you're taking everything that you can to tell the story. And I think that's the key is to have that same approach with a scripted narrative. If you have a shot of something, it doesn't matter if you're using it in scene 93, you should use it in scene three, see how it works there. You should use a piece of it and cut it out and put it behind somebody in scene 52. You just have to use everything that you have to try to tell the story as best you can. And that's what I feel like you do in a documentary inherently. And sometimes people have trouble doing with a scripted narrative. Do you think that's an, a, a memory thing? That's one of those things that I think is an advantage. Oh, I remember this great shot. Absolutely. A lot of the great editors that I look up to, they always say, once you feel like you have the movie perfect and your audiences are loving it, that's when you need to go back and watch all the dailies again <laughs> and and comb through it all again. Because you have the context. you see things completely differently. Yeah. And then you'll find these little gems and things that you need to work into it and try it out and show it again. And that's how you get to that from 90 to 95, you know. Maya, was that concept where you came up with that jump scare that you remembered some shot that was not meant to be used? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the shot was used, but we only see it for like, I don't know, like two seconds, three seconds. In a totally um, different scene, yeah. So as an apprentice editor, when you were watching Nick or seeing all of this, and both Nicks, and all the Nicks, <laughs> as they were working um were you astounded at how many revisions and how much it evolved absolutely so many things have been tried the assembly cut is like totally different from what we have now it's amazing to see the journey this movie went through i, I remember watching it with gloria and thinking like, oh, this movie sort of plays like an indie movie a little bit. Uh, and now this, it's turned into like this grandiose sort of like almost sensory overload thing, which is amazing. Nick Ramirez, do you have thoughts on the evolution of the film and how much it's changed? Yeah, well, I do want to jump in on uh, my just about the, the indie sort of spirit in there. Like that from the get-go for me was such an interesting thing because even though Little Woman was not an indie, like it very much had that heart. Lady Bird was obviously an independent project, and that feels like so much what Greta and also Noah's wheelhouse. If we're if, if you're going to label them as a director art tours, like historically, that's what they've done. So to step into the arena that is Barbie, but coming from that place was such an interesting thing because it's it's inherently baked into the script and to the heart of it. I think like a lot of people are seem to be responding so well to is the film kind of does it all. Like it is this high octane comedic music driven pink bedazzled parade <laughs> um, that also has you crying at a, you know, whole family montage in the last moments. 
it's an incredible trick. And I don't think that trick would have been possible at all without that independent, if for lack of a better word, spirit underneath the hood. Greta's so strong at that of making sure she's not missing or losing something along the way. And if there's any movie that you could lose it in, it would be this one. There's so much going on. As it evolved, that would one thing I'd want to just point out is like, yeah, that that thread was always in there and needed to be taken care of. And I guess from the evolution, of course, with this caliber of actors, some of the stuff that was in the dailies, whether it was just little improvs or entire things, like there was so many amazing variations that could be done. I feel like it's almost like there was pieces of candy at every turn where it's like you could have like, oh, that's so funny. I want to keep it in. And it took a real astute discipline to not be taken off track by that. Because I can say for myself, I can think of so many specific takes or variations early on where still to this day, hilarious. And when when they maybe got shaved down or reoriented, there's a little bit of me that's like, oh, I, I missed that. But I know. so goes the it's process. It's so hard to lose things that you love. And that's just so much of the job. And so I, I keep saying like there's seven versions of this movie that we have had screened or had worked on that I wish people could see because they're amazing in their own right. And we just ended up at this one, which I think is the best, but it, it really is different than we just had so much great material to work with. And Abdul uh, was there the whole time as well. And like helping to do, you know, a lot of the the visual effects and things that, that we were just really temping, like just trying a bunch of crazy ideas with horses and spaceships and the depth of the Mattel universe of toys to, to mess with was so deep. And he was really going through the, the Mattel archives and finding all the best things to put into the movie along with the VFX department and, and the design team. Abdul, what did you get to mess with? I know that you've got a little bit of an animation background that we talked about. Uh, what did you get to do? You know, like they said, it was always a collaborative effort. Nick and everyone always like included me, which was pretty awesome. Was it the Mount Horsemore? What we called the when we had the Mount Horsemore with the horses? I got to, you know, mess around in Photoshop and like do some designs for that and just like different things here and there just to play around to help whatever shots that had some VFX things that I could help out with. I was always happy to help with. There's a shot early on where it's like the two Barbie astronauts saying hi to Barbie when she's driving through the town. Abdul was like, let's put this little like crazy Barbie uh, spaceship that I found like online that is a real spaceship in the Barbie world. There's just so many things they've made. And so that's still just sitting there exactly the way that he wanted to put it in. And it's just stuff like that is so fun. Like when you're doing it early on and you're not sure what's going to make it into the final movie and there it is. We also, you know, got to do a lot of like temp ADR too. That was also lots of fun, you know, just playing around with different, you know, sound things too. So yeah, it was always fun. Yeah, we did a lot of ADR in this movie. I, we should have Brian Bowles on because he's our amazing dialogue editor. We had the most ADR probably of any movie that's not like a an animated movie, I would say. And we ended up using five to ten percent of it, but we just tried so many ideas and did so many things with ADR. It was really fun. And Abdul was amazing at it. And as was our whole crew, actually. We had a good team of actors on this post crew as well. Abdul, while I've got you, uh, we're talking to you, uh, we were talking a little bit about as you get out of school, um, that the things that they don't teach you, like the fact that most of your life is going to be freelance and nobody even talks about that. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea that this is not what I thought my life maybe was going to be, but it seems cool. 
Yeah, it was interesting. You know, going to art school, I went for animation. I think the whole four years I was there, the only time I heard the word freelance was like maybe once. And it wasn't even explained what being a freelancer was until like I hit the real world and it was just like, holy moly, just the whole storm of, okay, you have a gig, you don't have a gig, what are you going to do? It was really tough trying to navigate that. But thankfully, once I decided I wanted to switch from animation to live action, I joined the Made in New York post-production program. And that's how I met Maya. The amazing Maya. We have like a little Slack group. She was like, oh, you know, we're looking for a post PA for a film. I didn't know what filming was at the time, but you know, I, I sent it Maya's way. And after I met Nick Cooey, I got to join this awesome adventure, meet an amazing crew, and it's been pretty awesome. Talk about how important connections are. And if you were going to talk to an, a, another young editor, what what advice would you give them? That's paramount when it comes to networking. A lot of people think it's about who's the biggest person that could get me the most jazz, but... Like, you have to go meet Christopher Nolan or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know what I mean? But it's, it's not that. It's look at your peers, you know what I mean? One of the mantras I love the most is from Joseph Campbell. He likes to say, follow your bliss. My bliss is storytelling and film. So it's like when you're following your bliss, and I met all these great people that are following their own bliss and following their dreams... It's like connecting with all those, all those people and, you know, they're going to find their way eventually. And when those things happen, it's like all those connections you make, you know, like Maya, me to Maya, you know, we both are interested in the same things. That's the connection right there. She got the gig and, you know, help me with it. And I'll be hopefully able to help her or anyone else with it. So it's about, you know, it's all about connection, you know, it's about genuine co connection, not really about oh, this person should be a rung on your ladder to get to where you're trying to go. It's about like being personal and just, you know, bonding with people, you know, that's what it's really about, you know? So it's networking, but it's really about connection, you know? Amen. I love that idea that networking is not like a LinkedIn. It's a personal connection you have with other people. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Hui is nodding his head. I also love the fact that you pointed out that Abdul didn't know Greta Gerwig you know, he didn't want to get on a Greta Gerwig film. He knew Maya. Right, exactly. When I was an apprentice and, and PAing, it's, that's what it's all about is like you and your peers, like just trying to help each other out and make things happen. And if you're all doing that, me and like Jen Lame were doing, we were apprentices together. And now we have Barbenheimer against each other, you know, quote unquote against each other. It's like if you guys just keep working together and helping each other out and moving forward and being creative and like respectful of each other your desires and things change over time, but it's cool to just pursue what you want to do and follow your glisses, as Abdul said. And if you keep doing it with the right people and have your heart in the right place and work hard, you'll you'll achieve at least some of that for sure. Tell me about meeting Abdul and what did you find in him that you thought was great? Because he's not, you know, he doesn't have a ton of experience as an editor, which you wouldn't necessarily expect for his job. What was it that made you feel like he should be on the team or even Maya or Nick for uh, Ramirez for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I always say that I just look for somebody who really wants to be there and wants to be creative and is excited to be there every day and is a good communicator. I think that's totally important because if you're working really hard with a team of people and one of them can't communicate properly everything's going to fall apart abdul is a great communicator he says hey i have to leave at three o'clock to go see my nephew's soccer practice like we all have to be able to say those sorts of things and work really hard and kill ourselves over the material but love doing it and i think that's key is actually wanting to do it and enjoying 
doing it and being able to communicate that you also need a life outside of that. And just being able to say it organically and all work together to the best of your abilities. You can just tell when people are going to be like that and when they're going to be holding something in and being resentful in some way or not communicating what they need, which is super important. You have to be able to communicate what you need or else people aren't going to be able to anticipate it. Maya, thoughts on this? One thing about this crew that I really appreciate this crew really sees your personhood. <laughs> it's not all about work all the time. If you have family things going on, go deal with them. Your humanity is considered, which I really appreciate um, with this crew. And it, and it speaks to the movie, too. I mean, it's all about <laughs> being a person. Nick Ramirez uh, you were on Lady Bird and you'd think, oh, well, you know, on a bigger film, you've got more people, you've got a better chance of cutting. Is that true? <laughs> on this one, it did not try to be the case. And I think most firsts in this uh, scope of a film would probably agree. I think I learned in this one. Going into this, I mean, I think for all of us, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone here, but I think from honestly, Greta on down, none of us had done anything this big before. You have an idea of what this would be so you're prepared for certain aspects of it in that sense but surprises still hide around every corner so that was probably one for me even knowing like all right this is going to be a little crazy some days but we'll squeeze some time in there especially because nick and i not totally different project but we had been just co-editing in fact i mean i was finishing that while we were starting this there was a lot of crossover actually the first like four or five months as a first on something of this size in previous jobs, I would say it's a little, you do everything. You do cut, you do sound, you do VFX, you do the, the temps, you coordinate workflow, all the things. And that remains true on something of this large, but it's almost, parts of it almost rose to more of a supervisorial level that I wasn't fully expecting. And that's not to say we didn't have great post-supervision from Jen Lane and Amanda Dodzinski, our coordinator. It was just, there's some nitty gritty things that with all the departments firing all cylinders, I could easily spend half or more of my days walking down the halls or making phone calls to make sure certain things were in sync or that we were putting our best foot forward for the most efficient unfolding of events, whatever might have been coming up that day or week. One feature to all the experimentation and, and turning over of stones that we do on this one it does keep you on your toes though. It's, you know, whether that's your, uh, when we wind up with 1300 visual effect shots in the final cut. 1500, yeah. Yeah, but you're constantly changing things. There's a reaction time to those things, but you also have to make sure, you know, so if I wasn't checking in with VFX, they'd be checking in with me, be like, is this sticking? What's going on? Yeah, like, what do we like, you know, there's always a lot of strategizing going on. Crazy organization. Yes, yes, a high, high, high degree. And that so that was new for me, a new challenge and, and skill to, to further build out, especially having worked closely with Nick and Greta in the past in a smaller footprint. It was a challenging jump for me to, in some cases, uh, let go of like, oh, I normally would do this, 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 and this. But it's actually like, no, uh, Gloria, Maya, Jamie, when she came on, Abdul, like, boom, 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 we need to split this all up. And that was a big part of the job. That was, I've only, we've had some, other assistants or apprentices under me before, but not to this degree. So that art of delegation and organization was was a, was a new step on this one. And Nick Huey, you didn't have to do a lot of that management because that was on him, or did you feel like there was stuff that you needed to do as well? You, you were just or just nose to the grindstone for you. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> what's great about 
Ramirez and like since we are so close, we've worked so much together. Is I would walk into his room and he would see the look on my face and know exactly what I was gonna say. Because I'm in there with Noah and Greta like almost all the time, all day. I always have like this tall yellow notepad that I like burn through them. Like I'm just constantly making tons of notes, especially after a screening. It's like because you're getting it from producers, studio. We have many producers. We have Noah and Greta, and then all the people also just in the screening and stuff. So I've got millions of things to always filter through and being able to have a team where I go, you know, in real too, when he says this, let's bring that down and move it over here or whatever, like any little thing. And they know exactly what I'm talking about and being able to communicate and delegate that quickly with a team this smart and capable and creative was like essential. We would still be working on it. We would never have made it if it weren't for Ramirez and the way he was able to delegate to this team was stellar it was actually superhuman i would say <laughs> structurally was there any sense of needing to get to a certain point in the film earlier like on films i've cut it's been how quickly can we get to act two did, was it like how quickly can we get to la and then what happened how did that evolve the first time i read the script i said everyone's going to say she needs to get on the road sooner and there was that whole scene where she's sort of getting ready to get on the road and the kens are watching the barbies and the I love that scene because it's such a great gender reversal. It's like, it's all about the Barbies and what their journey is. And the Kens are off on the side, standing by the pool, like drinking their their little drinks of their fancy straws. And they don't really know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> and like that scene, I was like, you know, there was early on, like people were like, you don't need this scene, like just get her on the road. And it's like, sure, that's totally a simple note to give. And it makes total sense. But you need that scene, man. It sets everything up in a beautiful way. And even on the page, I was like, we got to have this scene. And we, I think it was like the last thing we shot because they kept thinking it would fall off. And so things like that, you're like, yes, of course you can say that. But without it, it's not the same movie. And there's so many things like that. And you need to obviously try a version without it. We've tried millions of versions without it or much shorter or much longer. There's a lot more to that scene in the original version. So you just have to find the right balance and know that you're not selling the movie short just because of some idea that obviously you need to get things moving at a certain point in the movie. You also need to be flexible and let the movie tell you what it wants to be. Yeah, Nick Ramirez mentioned the idea of like so many different jokes and ideas. And that's one of the things that I thought of as I was watching it is you could have done so many more things, but the movie's already, you know. Oh, and they were in there. Yeah, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so that, so many more things. that makes me think of that classic story about art is knowing what's the minimum you can have kind of. Yes. That's a really good way to put it. It's like. Otherwise it's Baroque, right? It's. <laughs> and sometimes it calls for that. I mean, I think like the I'm just Ken dance scene is too much. And that's the point of it. It's supposed to be. They're taking over the movie and they're ridiculous and they go way too far with it. So as long as you understand what the purpose of the scene is and do everything you can to make it shine as best it can, whatever that purpose is at that moment to tell the larger story, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I love that idea of purpose. I think of I use that often but with the word intent like what's the intent of this scene because if you know what the intent is then you can go oh well, we can't cut the the ken at the pool scene because that sets up this idea what's the intent of that being in the movie yeah and everything's a setup and a payoff you have to think of it that way too if if you ha have the setup but not the payoff or vice versa then it just doesn't work from an assistant 
point, Maya, what are some important habits that you think are important to an assistant? I think maybe Ramirez can speak more to that. With Ramirez's leadership and how to organize tracks, how to organize the overall project was really key. And he really streamlined this project. It was so easy to navigate. I love that you're giving him cred. And I'm going to get to him in a minute, but I want to hear from you. What, so what are some of the things you learned from him? What are some of the things that you learned that needed to be done on a movie? Tons of folders. In the, in the Avid project, do you mean? Yes, in the Avid project, absolutely. And without, like, you know, in the Nexus. Tons of labeling things where they need to go, what they're for, dating them, just basically creating a library and maintaining it is really important following those rules and there's so many other things and one i just want to point out because Maya, you killed it like she's an apprentice editor and she was basically until brian bowles was involved who's our amazing dialogue and adr editor she was basically the gatekeeper of all of the adr and we're talking very complicated stuff with lots of temp adr with huge actors like helen mirren and, and she was the one saying oh that line's out this line's in let me print out new sheets for that hand it to Margot, hand it to Helen Mirren. And she was running that amazingly. And she was so organized and on top of it and, and creative in it. Like, why don't you try this line too? And remember that line from three months ago that Noah recommended? Like, let's put that in on the list too and see if Helen can do that. Like that kind of thing was unbelievable. And then once Brian came on, obviously he took over that and she was helping him with it, which was amazing. Because just like all the creative ideas, maybe editorially, we had just as many ideas with, ADR lines, um, some of which we would temp or some which we would just say, put this on the list, put this on the list, put this on the list. But you do that for six months, you got quite a list going. This film had such a huge amount of characters. So yeah, it was a real um, process maintaining, tracking. And then yeah, once sound was up and running, really sharing that with them and making sure things were up to speed. And then we would, Brian would make his more refined and beautiful ADR sheets for review. And we'd have, we sort of had to figure out a system for that. This is the review version. Then Nick and Greta would call out old things. And, but because we all kind of had our hands in it, you know, like Maya or Gloria would be like, wait, what about that line from three months ago? Do we still want that? It was always like a, a very continuous sort of thing. And so you go in fully armed with your idea kit for each ADR session. No, even if the cut changed back to an old version, you had that ADR line ready. Yeah, I didn't expect that feat of organization to be handed to me. Abdul, what about you? What did you learn about uh, the skill sets and things that maybe Nick Ramirez and Maya kind of taught you were necessary to, to be successful? It was just super inspiring just to be around all of them and to see Nick Ramirez with like the way he was organizing things and delegating different things. I was like able, especially as the PA, to see how each different thing that was being delegated, how it was serving the whole. It was pretty amazing to see, you know, it's amazing, especially being on the project for so long to see how everything evolved. It was just pretty wild to just see how going to each and every different like compartment and how they were able to just merge this thing to a, one vision. Nick Ramirez talking to some other assistants who would probably love to make this jump from a little indie first to gigantic blockbuster first. What advice do you have uh, for those people? Ooh, good question. 
it's that supervisorial thing. I think, I mean, for me, that's really what it was is to, to have your compass set, not just a day ahead, a week ahead, maybe more. Yeah. You always saw like a shipwreck coming and you're like, Hey, if we don't get ahead of this, something bad's going to happen. And you would do something about it. And that's key. That was the the biggest thing because on, on smaller films, even if you're working incredibly hard, which many people do, you have a smaller footprint, you're more nimble something unexpected comes up or happens you can maybe absorb it a little more easily with something of this scope there was a certain like just radar i had to develop of looking ahead so it was constantly looking forward then working backwards from that okay like what's going to make the most sense kudos to nick and and even sometimes by proxy greta this is where nick and i have the trust in the shorthand of like hey i'm going to actually reorient the plan that we were talking about here because i think xyz you know and he would always trust me with that let me sort of run that aspect of the process, even if sometimes it meant, hey, that thing you asked to be done right now, does it really have to be done right now? Or can we do it tomorrow morning? Reorganizing some of those things, being able to speak up when need be on those. In conjunction with that, just it's true on every film, but it's just so much more true on some of the wider team was just communication and whatever form that takes. I would try most days, particularly in our last couple months push, to huddle into, I'd always go into Gloria and Maya's room, which is right next door to mine. And, and if anyone else needed to, like, or, or Jamie, uh, who came on towards the end there, we'd all huddle up and just sort of be like, here's everything in my brain. Uh, what do you guys got? Let's make sure we're in sync. We would constantly kind of check in on that. It was a, making sure I didn't take up too much time doing that, but I always felt sharing basically the scope so that people aren't too blinders up in just their thing. To kind of have a broader so things aren't falling through the cracks yeah yeah to have a broad awareness of the wider things going on and sometimes it just be sharing like hey just so you guys know this is going on with vfx today you don't have to worry about it but i'm just letting you know that way if you're showing billy eilish the scene and matt comes in and has a question Gloria's like i know what you're talking about got it uh well i've taken up a lot of your time uh i want to thank all of you for uh sharing i know nick ramirez just took a red eye in and he's probably ready to fall asleep so uh thank you so much for joining me that's so interesting to talk to all of you and nick Huey, thank you for bringing the team on and letting them share as well yeah it was a team movie thank you so much for having us all on steve i really appreciate it yeah, yeah thank you so much this was awesome thank you <laughs> yeah thank you That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Nick Huey, ACE, Nick Ramirez, Maya Rivera and Abdul Indadi for joining me on Art of the Cut. And thanks to our partner Boris FX and to our sponsors Jump Desktop and Lens Distortions. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com, jumpdesktop.com slash cut, and lensdistortions.com slash AOTC. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.